If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com equity. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I am joined by my co-host and editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? I'm I'm really good. It's good to be back on the show. I feel like I missed a week. Well, I did miss a week, but I haven't you done did. that in so long. It feels like I haven't been on the show in like a year. Back in the old days, though, I used to miss half of them. So it's uh, I'm spoiled these days, always being around. Uh, but before we do all the news, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, first of which, Kate, uh, last week we had an audio issue with the feed. Yes, we did. So if people played the show and only got two minutes of it, uh, that's our bad. We fixed that. So you can go back now and hear the whole thing, which was fantastic. It was at the uh, TC Enterprise thing, mm-hmm. correct? The TechCrunch Enterprise Sessions Conference we had last week. And we interviewed Jason Green, who's the founder of Emergence Capital. And it was a great conversation. So please make sure to go download it again if you're one of those people who noticed the two-minute episode. Yes. And uh, critically, Disrupt is just around the corner. And Kate, I know that we're going to be there as a pair doing a podcast, but also you're doing some panels. What's going on? Yeah. So I think I talked about my panels maybe last week, maybe not. I don't remember. But I'll be interviewing um, the Breck CEO, the ClearBank president, the CTO of Slack. Um, I'll be interviewing Charles Hudson, who runs Precursor Ventures, a pre-seed fund. Um, Annie Kadavi, who's a general partner at Redpoint, and I'll be interviewing the Postmates founder, CEO, Bastian Lehman, ahead of their um, IPO. Uh, that's actually, I mean, I, I know that I'm like on a show with you, so I have to be nice, but like legitimately, it's a good run of panels, and I'm actually going to have to listen to, I think, all of those, which is... Which I know. I think I really lucked out. I've, I've been covering so many interesting things this year, so I got to, you know, of course, interview some interesting people. So I'm, I'm thrilled. It's also my first time interviewing anyone at Disrupt, so I'm a little nervous, but it should be a good time. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I can't say who did this, but someone at TC actually offered to get me a large whiskey before I went on stage for the first time for my first Disrupt interview because they were like, you look nervous. And I was like, that's not a good idea, though. Fine. Yeah, that's probably, <laughs> I'm probably not going to do that. But hey, it's definitely something to explore if my nerves are really getting the best of me. Uh, yes. And in addition to those things, there will be some how-to content at Disrupt. Uh, I know Bumble's coming, Fitbit, and some other top VCs. So it should be an overall pretty good show. So like Alex said, we're going to be recording at Disrupt. We'll be right in the middle of Startup Alley, which is the uh, area of Disrupt where hundreds of startups kind of gather and just show their stuff. So we'll be there. Um, If you want to get 20% off to Disrupt, you can use the promo code equity. Just visit techcrunch.com slash disrupt SF and you can get your tickets. Okay, cool. Now that is enough housekeeping stuff for this week. Let's dig into the show. And we're starting off with my favorite topic, I think, of all time. And not just VC, but also just kind of the, the world we work in. Uh, we work, and it's ensuing, I don't know, IPO travails, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you guys talked a little bit about uh, the pricing issues last week, so we'll put that to one side. But the biggest kind of news items are that it is said, reported, that SoftBank may want the IPO to be held, which would be fascinating. Uh, it has also been reported by CNBC that Adam Newman, the co-founder and CEO, wants to push ahead with the IPO. And this has led us to a question about how much money uh, they need to kind of operate the business. And if the IP doesn't happen, what's next? So, Kate, where do you kind of, uh, what's your opinion on this drama? So, not terribly surprising given what we've been hearing the last few weeks, but I just want to take a step back and say, like, the reason why SoftBank is encouraging WeWork to potentially shelve its IPO is because at this point, um, Wall Street's response to the IPO has been so, I mean, 
terrible that SoftBank's at risk of losing so much money because SoftBank invested late stage in Uber, sorry, no, Uber, and we work billions of dollars. And if WeWork indeed goes out at say $18 billion valuation or whatever we're kind of thinking is going to be the case at this point, SoftBank is in a really bad position. And this has already happened with Uber, which had a very disappointing debut just a few months ago. And they were also heavily backed by SoftBank. So SoftBank is in a really, really, really precarious position right now. And I can see why they'd be encouraging WeWork to perhaps wait, although the markets, as everyone's been saying all year long, are frothy there. It's a great time to go out. So do you think, Alex, waiting say six months, uh, you know, will benefit WeWork at all? I wish I had one of those like folksy colloquialisms, like you can't put lipstick on a pig backwards. Um, I don't have one, but my general impression is that the, the structure of the company will not materially change over a six month or kind of a two quarter period. So um, oddly enough, if I was giving advice, which is not my job, but if I was, I would say, go for it now. Just eat your lumps, go for it. If you believe in your model this much, raise as much as you can, get all the debt, invest it in the business because you claim it's going to be great. So then let's see how it plays out. I don't know if they can actually raise $3 billion in the IPO, which is the requirement for the $6 billion in debt, which means we don't even know if they can trigger that, that option from bankers. Um, on the SoftBank point, I just want to throw in a little bit of, uh, of nuance to that. Uh, Kate, I'm presuming they have some downside protection on their investments into WeWork. So there's, it isn't quite as simple as people are saying, like if it's 15, they're down by 25% on their investment. There's some, some nuance in there, but they did put their last billion into the company at a $47 billion valuation, which I'm sure marked up their prior investments. So on paper, they looked like a very good set of deals. If this goes public at 18 or 20, which is roughly the valuation they put their money in before, a lot of that paper accretion of value goes to zero as they're raising the vision fund too. And I think that's part of yes. the matrix of problems we're seeing. Yes, you're right. And I think there are many, many moving parts to this entire situation. But I think one of the key takeaways here for people listening to this podcast is just that valuations can be very meaningless. So the $47 billion valuation that WeWork raised at, I mean, it's clear the company's not worth that much money. And I think everyone at the time thought that, but now we're really seeing the impacts of um, hyper-exaggerated valuation. So one of the things I wanted to bring up was, uh, you know, months ago when Pinterest went public, we had a long conversation on equity about what it means to be an undercorn. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess just a company that IPOs at a valuation less than what their most recent private market valuation was. Yeah. And the idea was that because most companies going public these days are unicorns, it's kind of a stand-in term, but it would apply if you were worth 900 on paper and went out at 700 million as well. Yeah. And I mean, it happens a lot because like I just said, the valuations are not often correct. And sometimes they are so inflated that a company has really no, there's no way they can match it. So in Pinterest's case, it did end up, actually, I think it, I think it ended up being okay when it, when it did go out, but for weeks, 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 people were, were suspecting, you know, it was going to be an undercorn. It was going to be worth billions less when it, when it went out. And I think it ended up kind of floating right around where people expected, which, you know, kind of anticlimactic, but that's certainly not what we're seeing with WeWork. No, not at all. I mean, we've seen a couple of companies be repriced that were unicorns recently. And I'm not just talking about public companies like Box and Dropbox that have had their valuations kind of cut as their growth has slowed. You know, Uber is now worth a, what, probably 10, 15, $20 billion less than it was at its IPO date. Uh, we're going to see WeWork give up a large chunk of its valuation. Uh, Lyft has struggled. And even just, you know, today, um, we're not going to hit on the stakes. It's not really something that we care about too much, but Smile Direct Club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Had a good pricing run and actually went public uh, above its uh, IPO price range. 
got wrecked today and was just told by the market that it was not worth $8.9 billion after mm-hmm. all, but actually worth quite a lot less, maybe seven if I'm doing the math correctly in my head. So we're seeing some private market enthusiasm even get through the IPO pricing process and then run into reality. So there is a disconnect here between how people are valuing things. And I wrote a piece, Kate, like, I don't know, a month ago, like, no one knows what anything's worth. And I was kind of being tongue-in-cheek about it, but maybe I was accidentally... It's true, once. though. VCs can value a company in a certain way, but because of competition in, in venture capital right now as a whole, VCs are pricing up rounds in a way, I think, I guess, to levels that we've not seen before. And I don't want to go down this t- tangent because I want to slightly change the subject still on, on, on the subject of WeWork. But you wrote a piece today that was, how much money does it need? Or sorry, this week. How much money does WeWork need to reach independent viability? And I think there are questions around at what point does it stop? Like how much money... Does WeWork need to survive because it does burn through cash so rapidly and continues to need, you know, massive infusions as large as three billion, you know, six billion dollars from investors? Yeah. So let me just throw some quick numbers about that. And I promise I'll be brief. Mm-hmm. I know we're trying to keep things moving. But like uh, at the end of um, j- the June quarter this year, WeWork had two point four seven billion dollars of cash and equivalents on hand. Um, in the first half of this year, their operating cash burn was just under two hundred million. And their investing cash burn was $2.36 billion. So if they invested and spent cash at the same rate they did in the first half of this year, in the second, and raised no money, unless I'm missing something, they had negative cash, which means they're dead. So either they're able to raise more money in some capacity, or they have to dramatically curtail their cash burn on operating and investing functions to make this kind of work. And I'm not the only person who was thinking this. Um, some folks uh, that I were reading uh, over at, I'm going to butcher this, where the hell is this? IWG uh, made a bunch of kind of interesting calculations and they found that even if WeWork raised all the money it's trying to now, it would still need a bunch more money to get to um, kind of cash flow break even in time. So it's an incredibly cash hungry company and I don't know what it's going to do. And this is fascinating because it could be a train wreck. I think it's already been a train wreck. It could be an even worse train wreck. It could, it could be, be an even a trainier train wreck. wreck or a yeah. wreckier train or whatever that is. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Okay, should we move on to another train wreck? <laughs> I mean, it does seem to be the theme of the show. So yes, let's do it. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about Uber now. I know we're focusing really on the late stage. Uber is not even a private company at this point. They did go public this year, but... Um, a lot of the news out this week about Uber will impact the entire ecosystem. So we felt like it was pretty important that we at least touch on it. So I'm just going to start with news of layoffs at Uber. So, um, yes, we, you know, we recently did a report on some Uber layoffs, I believe, in marketing. But there were another 435 employees that were let go um, announced this week um, at Uber. So that represents 8% of the company. So this is not some sort of like tiny, tiny blip on the radar. This is a pretty big deal. Um, Uber is clearly restructuring and trying to figure out a way, I think, to make the company a bit more lean. Um, it has grown to 27,000 full-time employees, um, you know, in offices all around the world. So there's clearly an effort being made there to, um, I mean, I think under Dara to just sort of, I guess, eliminate the weak links or whatever it may be. So um, I don't know, Alex, do you have any thoughts on what this means for the company moving forward? Well, to me, it shows an increased focus on cost cutting. And I think that's, yeah. that's critical for the firm. I think, it's, uh, I think everyone kind of agrees that their cost structure is unsustainable given the gross margin that their core business can generate. And the company has certainly been whacked recently for having a, a set of operating and net losses that even with reasonable qualifications about share-based compensation and so forth are, are too high to be sustainable as its growth has slowed. 
Um, second major round of layoffs, we saw them do other cost cutting, like the balloon thing. So to me, it's it's good signals to Wall Street that this matters, that they do care about this and they are listening. Um, I don't have enough context on exactly who was laid off to really kind of vet or gauge the quality of the decisions on an individual basis. Right. But certainly to me, as a, as a cynical outside observer, this seems intelligent. So um, just a couple more notes on that. The, there were no, of course, no drivers laid off and there were no people within Uber Eats which were laid off, which makes a whole lot of sense because as we've heard time and again, Uber Eats is the fastest growing business within Uber. So I think if anything, they're only going to expand that team as they sort of cut down on these inefficient teams like marketing. And I'm not exactly sure, like you said, where the cuts were this week, but oh, it was actually, sorry, it was engineering and product teams. So we're seeing them cut across all teams at this point. Well, what's really fascinating about that is that Uber is cutting in the most competitive part of its talent stack. Because if you want to hire engineers and product people, it's very competitive in Silicon Valley and even around the world. And so to see Uber decide to cut those roles, it implies that they're very serious about cost cutting. This is not a reduction of like interns. Yeah, I, I agree. Although I think so much of what Uber has built is uh, in essence, like a pretty well-oiled machine. So I guess I can understand why some cuts in engineering might've been made, you know, but otherwise, I mean, marketing is more of a puzzle to me because I mean, of course they still need to have these very strong marketing efforts, but I think my guess is that they were just these massive, massive teams that were not working terribly well. And so they were able to cut back just because they were, had it overgrown. Yeah. I, I would, I would add to that, that if you have 27,000 employees, you probably have some fat somewhere to cut. And so these are the first two decisions that make some sense. Kate, have you read the Mike Isaac super pumped book yet? I have started the book and I'm not done. I don't want any spoilers. Okay. Well, I'm one page in, so you're certainly <laughs> ahead of me. Um, I, I bring it up because there's a letter mentioned in the text uh, the book is called Super Pumped, by the way. Buy a copy, support your local journalists, please. Um, that discusses that Travis was going to send this letter to the company, and then he was forced out before the letter was sent. And Gizmodo actually published it this week. And I thought it was interesting enough that I, that I thought we should touch on it for a second. Um, what's fascinating about the letter from the erstwhile Uber CEO, Travis, is that it shows some contrition. And also critically, in my view, acknowledges some failures of the company's organizational structure to advance to the point that it could uh, be uh, uh, as mature as it needed to be. And the two things that I wanted to, to point out from the note are that they discuss quote, an avalanche of organizational debt. And a lot of the companies that we talk about on equity that are you know, probably Series C and beyond that are raising large tranches of capital, large blocks of money, often scale their people very quickly. They hire a lot of folks because they have a lot of money to do that. One thing that comes with that is uh, immaturity of business over stuff with people and you have issues inside of your org about how teams work together, how HR functions. Um, you can have a lot of key and core issues that can hurt your business long-term. So to see Travis mention that, I thought was a, a, a useful admission uh, of where the business was. Finally, um, every company has values, kind of a set of like things they talk about, um, like do good or whatever. Uh, Crunchbase has a couple of these. We put them on mugs. It's kind of fun. Um, Uber had some that were notably potentially aggressive, like, like toe-stepping and always be hustling and that sort of thing. And he laid out in this letter that some of those weren't working for the business. And so to, to me, this matters because if you go back in time, VCs and industry observers were saying, without Travis, there is no Uber. And I think what they meant was without the ethos that he brought to the business, there was going to be no Uber. But here is the guy who built the ethos saying it wasn't working anymore. So to me, this actually operates almost as an endorsement of Dara's um, CEO term, if you will. And I, I just recommend that everyone read it if, if you can. We'll put it in the, the show post 
if you want to find it on TechCrunch, um, yeah. it's a fascinating, fascinating read. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you just mentioned, the, of course, Travis Kalanick, given that he was the founding CEO, had a huge impact on Uber and the culture that um, still exists there today. And despite the fact that Dara has made a lot of changes to sort of, I don't know, get rid of some of the um, influence he's had, uh, there's no changing the fact that so much of the company's core is a result of Calnex's leadership. Um, so anyway, moving forward to some other Uber news this week, um, there was a bill that was passed in the state of California. Um, it's called AB5. And yes. this bill is going to enforce companies that um, employ gig workers to classify them as employees rather than contractors. So of course, the first company you think of is Uber. Um, this would mean that Uber drivers would be classified as employees um, in theory. Uh, and that would mean that they would be provided better compensation, better benefits or benefits than, at all. And they could uh, address and handle their taxes much easier. But Uber is saying that this actually doesn't apply to them at all because drivers um, are outside, quote, the course of Uber's usual business. So what that means is, you know, sure, most Uber employees, they're not drivers. So Uber is saying, well, majority of our employees aren't drivers. So this really this this isn't a, a bill that makes any sense to be applied to a company like ours. They, they think it should be applied to companies in which a majority of their usual business or a majority of their workers are actually gig workers. I have thoughts about this, yeah. but I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to get part of this wrong. So please don't send me an email telling me that I hate capitalism. <laughs> uh, it, so I, just to be clear, I am a capitalist. I work for a company, et cetera. Uh, so that's my general perspective. But in, in my view, the, 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 the value that Uber has created has been uh, slightly misapportioned overall. And I think that the way the company currently operates doesn't afford enough economic benefit to the drivers. And that's predicated on my opinion of being an Uber user since 2011 and talking to drivers uh, you know, around the world while I've been in their cars. Uber's idea that they can avoid AB5 by claiming that the drivers are outside of the normal course of business, if it works, shows that the law was poorly drafted. Because um, obviously they didn't put this law in place and then expect Uber to wiggle out of it like this. And then finally, uh, this has been kind of like brought up before. There was a time this was uh, an issue in New York. And so we actually have seen Uber defend this perspective before. And their argument, I'm going to kind of quote here from Uber at the time, was that that it's the, it's the riders who need the drivers, not Uber. Uber is just a marketplace in between, which is doublespeak to me. Of course, Uber needs the drivers. They generate the revenue that Uber takes a cut of that powers their entire business. And so to me, it seems like a semantic argument trying to wiggle out of a, yeah. a moral uh, requirement. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really upsetting to see Uber try to bypass this new law, which was built to protect all of the thousands and thousands of workers across um, you know the state that are um, kind of being taken advantage of by the system. But the thing is that, I mean, Uber, as we've talked about, is already losing billions of dollars. They're losing so much money. And all a lot of that has to do with subsidizing rides. If they have to pay their drivers better and they have to give them benefits or whatever it may be, uh, I mean, how detrimental, I guess, is that for Uber? Well, how far can they cut their cost structure? I mean, yeah. we just discovered they have 435 people they didn't need in their engineering product teams. That's mm -hmm. a hell of a lot of cost. I mean, I, 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 the argument, I think, Kate, is that there's two, there's two sides. One that I got on Twitter recently was that, you know, if Uber has to do this and then they have to classify drivers as full-time or not, and then they can't hire as many drivers as they wanted, it's going to be, can't, you know, it's not a good situation. The flip side of it is maybe Uber doesn't work. 
That's business. I mean, it's never ever gotten close to viability. It's never become close to make generating cash on a, on a large basis compared with the numbers that we've seen. So if Uber needs 27,000 employees to operate a marketplace in which the drivers it claims are not even part of its core business, maybe it's not that great of a business. And I, you know, that's not a popular point. No, I mean, it's not a popular point because especially down here in, in quote unquote Silicon Valley, uh, there are a lot of people who have, who personally did invest in Uber and who are long on Uber because of that. And uh, sure, whatever, I understand that. But I think what you just said about the fact that Uber has never been a viable business and Uber still loses a ton of money um, is kind of the narrative that I think should be pushed moving forward. I think there should be more on that. I know that Dara, like in response to Mike Isaac's book that we already talked about, um, has made a bunch of statements about how long, how he's so excited about Uber and yes, it's great business and all these things, but we're not seeing any evidence of that. And the fact that they are so adamantly opposing, um, AB five, um, which is really meant to support the people who work for them. Um, I think just goes to show how afraid they are of these potentially, um, of these, of these, uh, I guess, of policy in the still nascent sector of ride hailing and gig, gig economy, et cetera. Yeah. And then as, as a last point to wrap this up so we mm-hmm. can kind of uh, move on, you know, you mentioned how we work as a soft bank backed business that now has problems with its losses. Uber is another soft bank backed business that now has problems with its losses. DoorDash is the current darling of the Vision Fund portfolio in SoftBank's world. I'm curious if it will suffer from a similar issue when we eventually see its numbers. That would be uh, problematic for the Vision Fund's eventual returns. But Let's move on and go back to our normal fare. Let's talk about uh, some earlier stage stuff, um, some really early stage stuff with Work Life Ventures, which is a new, uh, is it seed or pre-seed stage fund? So, I mean, you know, you can decide at this point, I'm kind of, none of those terms seem to really uh, mean anything anyway, but I think it's, I think it's checks around like a hundred K. It it seems like she's, she's doing sort of probably a mixture. Um, I think it's a little opportunistic as well. So like, Yes, it's focused on SaaS. So she'll be kind of going after enterprise SaaS startups. And I guess I should take a step back. So there's a new fund they launched this week. The fund is called Work Life Ventures and it's led by a solo general partner named Brianne Kimmel. So Brianne Kimmel, she's been, you know, been in kind of tech for, for a while. She had some stints at um, Zendesk where she created the Zendesk for Startups uh, program. And then kind of from there created this thing called SaaS School, which is a two times per year hosted workshop that helps SaaS founders with monetization and a bunch of other things become an expert on on, on uh, because of her experience. So she's so well connected to SaaS companies and to SaaS investors that people were encouraging her to just go ahead and raise her own fund. So she was like, why, why, why not? And she did. She raised $5 million. She told me that it took her two weeks. So she basically just reached out to people she already knew and said, will you invest in my fund? And they were like, yes, definitely. So it's cool. It's, I mean, it's great. It's great to have some dedicated funds to specific industries at the early stage. Um, it's, it's good for the ecosystem, although SaaS enterprise certainly d- doesn't need more investment. That's probably where the majority of cash is going these days. But nonetheless, it's also great to see a, a, a solo female um, GP. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. I just find it kind of funny because you tweeted out in the last couple of weeks, like someone just told me that I should be an angel investor. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought that was hilarious because I've been told similar things in my life. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And here's someone who actually was told that and just went out and did it. So, you know, points to them. I, I think it's, it's good to see someone actually act on that advice. Anyways, work-life interest is cool. We will be covering it uh, here and there as it makes investments. And uh, we can scoot on to uh, the early stage round of the week, uh, rounding off uh, today's show, which is Magic Spoon. Now, Kate, you had heard of this before I brought it up. Is that right? Yeah, I almost feel like I was... 
targeted on Instagram or something because I've seen ads for this company, I think, before. I definitely immediately knew what you were talking about. You guys covered it over at Crunchbase. So give us like the TLDR of the round. Yeah. So it was a uh, five and a half million dollar round into a company that's building a, it's, it's a D2C high protein cereal business. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a website that sells. <laughs> You're like, I'm not joking. <laughs> I, I, it's a high protein cereal business. I don't know. Um, the, the context behind it though, is that the, the founders, uh, Gabby Lewis and uh, Greg Sowitz, if I'm getting those names right, uh, had worked in cricket protein before, like, you know, mashed up crickets as a food source. And they said that was really hard because they had to build the whole market for themselves, like demand and supply. And so they moved into this, this cereal uh, venture. Um, and we're not going to make a cereal entrepreneur joke because that would be low hanging fruit. <laughs> uh, but what's fascinating to me is they raised five and a half million uh, led by Lightspeed, which is a legit VC firm. Like, they yeah. come up all the time. Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of DGC folks have put money into it, including the co-founder of Allbirds, uh, a co-founder over at Harry's, and uh, the co-founders of Warby Parker. So the DGC world is putting money into this company, um, which is kind of fun to see people kind of fund their own niche. Yeah. I mean, I'd really like to see the numbers behind this company, I guess. I know, I'm sure it's very young and I don't know how long ago they launched, but I'd still like to see it because obviously they have must have something if they're able to get money from Lightspeed and, and even like somebody, Allbirds guy, whatever, uh, they must have something impressive going on behind the scenes. I mean, to me, I think that they have excellent branding. I see that immediately. Um, go to their website, uh, magicspoon.com. You can see that, that somebody behind this knows what they're doing as far as uh, developing a unique um, image, but it's cereal and I would buy my cereal at Trader Joe's or at Safeway. Yeah. And we were talking about this before we actually started recording and you thought the price point was relatively high on a per bowl basis. Yeah. So I went to the shop now button. You can buy, uh, they sell it in packs of four and then it, um, and then it costs, so it costs about 40 bucks. So that's $10 a box, but they do break it down for you. They say that's $1.39 per bowl. I'm not, I'm not really entirely sure because this is the first time I've looked at the website, but that's kind of what it looks like. I don't know. I, Sure, dollar or whatever per bowl is reasonable, but like forty dollars per pack for for four boxes isn't really not that much cereal. Yeah, it's also a hell of a lot of money because you can go to like the store and get the huge bags of like off-brand cereal for like five bucks. Oh so, yeah, yeah. You this is probably not how I'm going to spend my money. I do like that it's higher in protein and it's probably a lot healthier than like. Well, I'm sure it's healthier than some of the cereal that I that I um, am attracted to, but yeah. still, it's it's. I'm not. Let's just say I'm not. I'm not going to be a customer. Did you remember how you said this was like targeted at you because you've seen Instagram ads? I feel like this is targeting my current like health push. Like it's high protein, it's low carb, it's good for you in the mornings, it's overpriced. I feel like I should, I should, I'm like the target customer for this. So if I don't buy it, which I haven't decided yet, that would be a bad sign therefore. But anyways, Magic Spoon now has five and a half million dollars with which to expand. So maybe they can bring the price point down and get all of us millennials on board. But I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. Maybe um, now that we talked about Magic Spoon, they'll send us cereal and we can eat it um, on video next week when we're recording. No, no she's kidding. Don't, <laughs> don't send her cereal. <laughs> uh, but I will be back in the TC studio with you next week. Yeah. And then of course in three weeks from I think today. Oh my God. Live at TechCrunch Disrupt SF. That's which will be too like, like, soon. Disrupt. Oh, okay. Well, great. I'll see you next week, Alex. And thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me. I'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. You can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. 
And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.